Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're joining us for the first time, we have been working through on Sunday mornings Paul's first canonical letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're in a larger section dealing with uh, the roles of men and women in the human family. That's going to end at the end of chapter 7, and this is the last message that you'll hear from me on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, but it's one of the most important, and it's based on not only Paul's own uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit, but on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be dealing with quite a few New Testament texts today. And uh, because I don't want this sermon to stretch on for two or three hours, uh, I'm going to put some of those passages on the screen to make it a little easier for you to follow. And uh, we'll, <clears throat> we'll get through that. Uh, I think a little more smoothly that way. Uh, but let's go ahead and read to begin uh, verses 10 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Let's pray together. And as we go to prayer, I want to ask you guys to join me in praying this week for uh, one of our sister churches, the gathering at Brock. Uh, one of their pastors, Wynn Brown, uh, had a, a heart attack recently, and he's in the hospital just uh, really in, in uh, a tough situation, and, and, and we've just been praying fervently for his healing, so I would ask you to join me in that. Uh, but let's go to prayer, and then we'll get into our text today. Father, uh, thank you for meeting us in real life. Thank you for speaking your words of wisdom into the, the difficulties and the trials that face real people. It's true that our hope is not in this earth. It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We will one day fly away and, and join you in the sweet by and by. But you don't leave us just waiting for that. You tell us how to deal with the difficulties and the situations that we deal with now. And Lord, we just want to praise you for your wisdom, your mercy, 
your patience, and your goodness in the instruction that you provide. It's always good, and we thank you for it. Father, we want to lift up our sister church, the gathering at Brock, and uh, especially for Pastor Wynn Brown. I ask that you would continue to work through the medical professionals who are helping him, and we ask that you would uh, enable him to uh, pull out of the uh, uh, various uh, heart uh, problems and, and, and cardiovascular problems, and also to begin responding to commands and uh, wake up and get better. Uh, Lord, we, we trust you. We know that you have him in your hands. Uh, but Father, he has uh, a burden for ministry, and we would just love to see him be able to carry that burden out and fulfill the calling that you've placed on his life. And so, Father, we trust you with this, and we ask that you would heal our brother. Uh, and and we, just, we believe in your character, Father, and, and your ability to do whatever you want. Father, as we open up this text, I, I ask that you would give us patience, a teachable spirit, and uh, that you would cause us to apply it as the Holy Spirit leads. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah Jane Mayfield was born into a dysfunctional family that eventually fractured, leaving her desperate mother to place her in a foster home when she was still a young child. Like many children in the world of foster care in the early 20th century, she was forced to grow up very quickly and decided to try her luck in Hollywood, moving from St. Joseph, Missouri to California in 1932. She was 15 years old. Mayfield lied about her age in order to find work as an actress, and she quickly became a favorite there in the budding film industry of the 1930s. While she would go on to have a successful acting career and even earn an Academy Award, her personal life was more or less a spin-off of the kind of brokenness that she experienced as a young child. She was first married to an Ernest Wyman at the age of 16. She kept Wyman's name, but the marriage only lasted two years. A second marriage lasted just three months. Then in 1938, now calling herself Jane Wyman, she fell in love with a handsome young co-star in a low-budget film. They married in 1940. Things started to get better. They had a child together. They adopted a second child. Their third child died, and the grief was almost too much to bear. Uh, it led Jane's husband, a man she would later describe as a great, kind, and gentle man, further into his work as the new president of the Screen Actors Guild. He devoted his spare time to politics while Jane languished in the background. Before long, while working on a set in another movie for which she would earn an Academy Award, Jane once again fell in love with a co-star. She had an affair and filed for divorce. Back then, it was much more difficult to get divorced. You couldn't just go to the courthouse and get, you know, get it taken care of. As hard as it is today, it was much more difficult back then. She had to have a legally valid reason. Her husband hadn't been unfaithful. She had been unfaithful, so she couldn't use that as grounds for divorce. So she did what a lot of people did back then. She made one up and paid a witness to corroborate her story. It was a well-known legal workaround, but her husband never got over it. You see, the unfaithfulness of Jane's parents had a sort of butterfly effect. Their brokenness 
impacted her later life. And then her brokenness impacted her third husband. And then, 20 years later, in 1969, still smarting from the shame of a false allegation, that very man, California Governor Ronald Reagan, signed into law the very first no-fault divorce statute in the United States. Other states would quickly follow. No-fault divorce simply means that any married person could file for divorce for any reason if they wanted to get out of the marriage. And of course, there were important legal reasons why no-fault divorce became popular. But in the 50-plus years since that moment, the unintended consequences have corroded our society beyond recognition. It's undeniable. Marriage is supposed to be a covenant, a lifelong Solemn promise and the fundamental building block of society itself. But between no-fault divorce, a culture of expressive individualism, and the sanctioning more recently of so-called marriage between two members of the same sex, the word marriage has come to be virtually meaningless in the United States today. So much so that many young people are choosing not to get married at all. Marriage... uh, is supposed to be this covenant, and yet millions suffer as a result of these cultural forces, mostly children. Now, I know it might be painful for some of you to hear this, but it's, it's a reality we all have to face. Children of divorced or cohabiting couples are three times as likely to drop out of high school, three times more likely to become teen parents, twice as likely to end up in prison. According to sociologist Paul Amato, if marriages remained intact at the same rate today as they were in the 1960s, the United States would have 750,000 fewer children needing to repeat a grade in school, 1.2 million fewer school suspensions, 600,000 fewer kids in professional therapy, 70,000 fewer suicide attempts. Now, I'm not saying that Jane Wyman is at fault for all these suicides. I'm simply trying to make the point that far from being just an individual choice that doesn't impact anybody else like the way we try to spin it in our society today, the the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is not just about my own personal happiness. It's really a matter, literally, of life and death. And it's all because we, as a larger society, have chosen to ignore the divine design of marriage. And so how much more should we as a local church understand what God teaches about this topic? I mean, if we don't get what God has to say about this, who is going to get it? Today we're going to ask and answer three simple questions regarding this extremely important topic. We're going to find that God's word has answers to these questions and that they are not glib or idealistic, that they meet us where we really live. First of all, should I stay married? Generally, yes. Secondly, are there any exceptions to the rule? Sadly, yes. We'll talk about those. Thirdly, Is remarriage an option after divorce? Sometimes, yes. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. My hope is to point you to some of the relevant passages in God's Word so that you can reach conclusions on the basis of Scripture and not just go along with what I'm telling you. 
So first of all, let's consider question number one. Should I stay married? Should I stay married? Well, the, the short answer generally is yes, but there's a longer answer to this question, and it has three parts. First of all, marriage is a permanent relationship. Marriage is a permanent relationship. Notice Paul's straightforward to the question, uh, answer to the question in verse 10. Am I getting this thing to work right? Oh, I did it wrong. There we go. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 10. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Now, don't get distracted by the fact that he uses two different words. They're used synonymously. He's not speaking about separation as though it were a technical category different altogether from divorce. He simply means whether you're the wife or the husband, the general rule is don't get divorced. You need to stay married because uh, marriage is a permanent relationship. Say, but why is that? Why does Paul care? What's the big deal? Well, notice the little throwaway phrases here in our text that that are almost uh, just confusing. They crop up in this chapter from time to time, like the one in verse 10. He says, not I, but the Lord. I'm not the one who's saying this, it's the Lord. Or later in verse 12, excuse me, in verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. What does that mean? He's simply saying that his own counsel is based on the teachings of Jesus. You say, who's the Lord? Well, it's specifically Jesus of Nazareth. And his teaching is based on the teachings of Jesus. That's what he means by the Lord. The fact is that prior to his death, Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. Some of those scenarios he addressed specifically. Some scenarios he did not address specifically. And that's what Paul means when he says, well, this is something Jesus addressed specifically. It's not I, the Lord. This is another thing. Jesus didn't address this specifically, so it's I, not the Lord. He's not saying, don't listen to what I have to say. You, don't have to, you can ignore what I'm saying. He's still speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's just making the point that Jesus didn't directly address that particular topic. So the point is that Paul's instruction is based on the teachings of Jesus that would later be included in the four Gospels. So we have to, what we have to do is we have to compare Scripture with Scripture in order to understand Paul's instruction in the context of what Jesus has already said and must have been known to at least some of the people at the church in Corinth. So what did Jesus teach about this topic? Well, look, for example, at Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is one of four passages in the Gospels in which Jesus directly addresses the topic of marriage and divorce. You'll notice that according to this passage, Jesus has left the uh, regions on the western bank of the Jordan River, and he's gone across the Jordan River. He's ministering beyond the Jordan when the Pharisees decide to ask him this question about marriage and divorce. Now, that's significant, because who is in charge of this particular region of Palestine during Jesus' day? It's a man named Herod Antipas. You know what happened with Herod Antipas? He himself got divorced, and ended up marrying his brother's wife. And John the Baptist called him out for it. He said, it's not lawful for you to have this woman as your wife. And what happened to John as a result of him speaking about marriage and divorce to Herod Antipas? He literally lost his head. So you say, Pastor, you know, it's so brave of you to talk about these difficult topics. Not compared to John the Baptist. And the Pharisees know this. 
and they want to get him in trouble. They want to get Jesus in trouble and probably score some points for their own point of view. You see, in first century Judaism, there were basically two schools of thought on the topic of marriage and divorce. On the one hand, you had a rabbi by the name of Shammai, and Shammai and his disciples taught that a married man was supposed to divorce his wife if she committed adultery. Like, it's not an option. You're just supposed to do it. It's an obligation. You divorce that woman. Shammai based that teaching on Deuteronomy 24, in which Moses talks about a scenario in which a man finds indecency in his wife, and then he divorces her. He, he reasoned, Shammai did, that indecency would be something like adultery or grossly immodest behavior of some kind. By the way, in the Jewish world during this time, men had the right to divorce their wives, but it didn't go the other way around. In the Greco-Roman world, it was a little different. There was a little bit more of a, an equal chance for both husband and wife to initiate divorce. But in the Jewish world, it was just the man that could do that. But Shammai limited divorce to adultery uh, or some serious type of immodesty or, or immorality or something like that. Uh, but he required it in cases of adultery. After all, if you look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, what's the penalty for adultery under the Old Covenant law? It's actually death. Now, if someone were experiencing that punishment, then their marriage would end, right? Because they're dead. And so Shammai reasoned, well, e even if we're going to give grace and we're not going to kill this person, uh, their marriage at least should end, and, and you really ought to divorce your wife if she commits adultery. Most people in the first century thought Shammai was a little bit too strict. And so there was another school of thought about divorce propounded by another popular rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel also based his views on Deuteronomy 24. He said, okay, it's all about what is indecency. What's indecency? Indecency could be really anything. Anything that displeases you about your wife could be grounds for divorce. And he even explicitly mentions, if she burns dinner and you want to divorce her because she burnt the dinner and ruined the dinner, then you can do that. That's, there's grounds to do that. You just have to give her a certificate of divorce. It's, uh, so, the, so the question in the Pharisees' mind was, what constitutes this indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24? Like, I want to know, what are all the reasons that I can get out of this marriage because I, I want to get out? And Jesus, uh, uh, by the way, it, it wasn't so much about whether divorce is ever permitted, but about whether someone could divorce their spouse for any reason. In fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, that's what Matthew explicitly says. They come to Jesus and they, they ask him, is it right, is it permissible, is it lawful to divorce your spouse for any reason? That is for any and every reason. Like, who's right? Hillel with his permissiveness or Shammai and his people who are strict? It's kind of like if I were to ask you, is it okay for 16-year-olds to drink? You would say, well, if they don't drink, they're going to die. Everyone needs water. You know, they have to drink some. Okay, you're missing the point of the question, right? You would immediately know if I said, is it okay for, for a 16-year-old to drink? You know I'm talking about drinking alcohol, okay? And so this question that the Pharisees are putting to Jesus, they're not saying, is it, is it okay to get divorced ever? They're saying, which one's right? Weigh in on this debate between Hillel and Shammai. This is how we need to understand the question. 
Now, both of those schools of thought base their understanding on Deuteronomy chapter uh, 24. We've already said that. And Jesus essentially says uh, that that's where your problem is, uh, that you haven't gone back far enough. In fact, he says, uh, uh, am, I, am I messed up here? I think I messed myself up. Uh, okay, we're back on track. This is why I don't use PowerPoint, guys, because it gets distracting. Uh, Jesus responds to them. He says, okay, here's the real problem. You're going back to Deuteronomy 24. You've actually got to go back a little bit further because Moses only said that in Deuteronomy uh, 24 because of the hardness of heart. That is, he's just addressing a reality. He's not telling you divorce is good. He's He's just addressing the reality that divorce is going to take place and what do you do in those situations? So he says, no, you've got to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore shall a man... Uh, leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What is that describing? It's It's describing a bond that is so deep and so personal and lasting and fundamental, a bond that is so tight that to pull it apart would be to tear apart the very uh, component parts that are a part of the bond. It's kind of like when you join two boards together with wood glue. When that glue dries, it's a stronger bond than the bond between the fibers of the wood. So if you break apart those, that joint in the wood, the glue joint isn't going to be what breaks. The wood is what's going to break. That's kind of like what marriage is. It's that strong of a bond. And so Jesus adds this comment, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is what Paul's teaching is based on. Marriage was invented by God from the very beginning. When a man and a woman are married, two become one. They are joined in a mysterious and fundamental way. By whom? By God. It's intended to be permanent. Now, our culture has effectively removed this component from the definition of marriage, haven't they? That's the world. That's not surprising. But what's disheartening is when God's people go along with that. Like marriage, permanent, if I feel like it. We were so young when we got together, we're really different people now. Have you ever heard anybody say that? We've just grown apart. We want different things. You know, I'm just not happy anymore, and I think my spouse would want me to be happy. I think my children would want me to be happy. I think God wants me to be happy, and therefore... Don't even entertain that kind of rationalization. It's poison. If you think that way, it's going to infect your relationship. It's a lie. It's just a way for you to justify yourself because you don't want to accept what Jesus clearly teaches. That kind of thinking is like a seed that you plant in the field of your life, and it grows, and one day you are going to reap its fruits, and and you will deeply, deeply regret explaining away the permanence of marriage. Now, that's not all there is to say, but the first thing we need to understand about marriage is marriage is a permanent relationship. Secondly, marriage is a priority relationship. Marriage is a priority relationship. Jesus reminds the Pharisees, a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. His mother and his father, that's the closest human relationship he has, and yet when he gets married, he leaves them and cleaves to his wife because that marriage becomes his number one 
relationship. Paul essentially says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7 when he describes the commitment required between a married woman and a married man. He says the married man has to focus on on how to please his wife. And she's got to focus on how to please her husband. This relationship has to take priority. You say, well, I'm, I'm really busy at work now. I've got some goals. You know, she knew about those goals when we got married. Have you ever heard somebody say that? She knew I was going to go back to grad school after I finished college. He knew I wanted to work in an office. You know what that means? It means your career is more important than your marriage relationship. But guess what? Your marriage takes priority over your career. You say, I would never let anything come between me and my kids. It's all about the kids. Listen, if it's all about the kids, you're in trouble. Because those kids, you love them. But they might drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And the marriage relationship needs to take priority over your kids and all your other family members too. If you don't agree, what's going to happen is that relationship's going to break apart. And you know who's going to suffer the most? The kids. Your marriage takes precedence over the kids and other family. Marriage also takes precedence over your companions. If you find yourself having to choose between your friends and your spouse, the choice is easy. Your marriage takes priority. Now, that might be painful. You might grieve it. It might be difficult to handle, but the choice is easy. It's simple. Your marriage takes priority. It's number one. Marriage is a priority over your call to ministry. Did you know that? Did you know that even ministry takes a backseat to your marriage relationship. You say, well, I want to do more ministry, but my wife is holding me back, or my husband is holding me back. I'm sorry, and that's tough. That's difficult. A lot of people deal with that situation. I know you want to serve the Lord in a specific way, but you are married. Your marriage takes precedence over your Ministry. The minute my ministry threatens my marriage, I've got to go back and reevaluate. Well, why is that? Well, number one, my marriage can take me right out of the ministry, right? Because if I don't have a, a good marriage, then what business do I have standing up here in front of you, right? So that's number one. But number two, the marriage relationship is my first ministry. So it takes prior, priority over your call to ministry. It takes priority over your comforts. Say, so I... I've always wanted to live in Texas, but my spouse wants to live in Arkansas. I don't know why, but... <clears throat> I don't know. My wife doesn't want to work outside the home, and now I can't buy all the toys that I want. My husband isn't very successful financially. He doesn't make as much money as I want, and so now I... You know, I'm kind of a high-maintenance person, and I can't buy the things that I wish I could buy. You've got to get over it. Because your marriage relationship takes precedence over your comforts. Listen, especially if you've only been married for a few years, pay attention to this. You have got to decide today, right now, that your spouse is going to be the most important person, the most important human relationship in your life, period, end of story, no debate, don't even entertain a different option. 
Everybody who's ever been married understands disappointment. They understand the tension when your mom and your wife don't get along or when your husband and your friends don't like each other or when you don't have enough money to go out to eat or you don't have enough money to buy the furniture or when this person wants kids and this person doesn't want kids. Everybody that's been married understands these things and they're difficult and they, they, they are tough. I'm not taking away from that. But don't let any of that stuff, any of those relationships get in the way of your marriage outside of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of obeying the clear commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, your priority is your spouse. You might not like it. You might not have thought about it when you got married. But that's the situation you are in. And God is still good, and he's still on the throne. And if you think that going against the will of God and saying no thanks to the clear commands of God in this matter is going to make life better, think again. It will not be better. You'll reap what you sow. Trust God. Listen to Jesus. Submit to his teaching and his wisdom. Make your marriage a priority. Marriage is a permanent relationship. It's a priority relationship. Thirdly, it's a pure relationship. Marriage is a pure relationship. Did you know that? Uh, let's look back at 1 Corinthians 7. Even in these difficult situations, marriage is a pure relationship. In verses 12 through 14, Paul addresses the specific scenario of a Christian being married to a non-Christian. Apparently God's people uh, in the city of Corinth, some of them at least, were dealing with an overly sensitive conscience a misinformed conscience. They were familiar with passages like Ezra 10. In Ezra 10, God's people were called out because they had intermarried with idol worshipers. And so in that particular passage, they were actually asked to put these wives away. And so uh, the, the, the people of God in Corinth knew that they had been set apart as holy vessels to the Lord, and they were worried that like those people in Ezra chapter 10, their spouse was going to contaminate their relationship with God and maybe even contaminate their children. And so they were wondering should I try to get out of this marriage? And, and Paul has to clarify to them that even if they found themselves married to an unbeliever, they needed to stay put, and that instead of worrying that their unbelieving spouse might contaminate them and contaminate the children, they needed to recognize the possibility of it going in the opposite direction. Like, it's actually possible for holiness, for being set apart, for that to infect somebody else instead of the other thing happening. Look what he says. He, he says... Uh, the, the, the woman or, or the, the, the wife uh, actually is made holy because of her believing husband and the husband is made holy because of his believing wife. That, that is, the, the holiness of the Christian person who has the Holy Spirit creates the potential for God to work in that other person that they're married to and in their children. Uh, holiness can be contagious. When the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses was told to take off his shoes. Because why? Because the ground was holy. See, the presence of God was there in the bush, and it made that bush holy. And then that bush kind of, it kind of infected the ground on which Moses was standing. And so Moses is standing on holy ground. You remember when Jesus came into the world and he began to interact with the sinners and the uh, unclean and he, he touches, for example, a woman who's got an uncleanness in her because of a sickness that she's dealing with and she reaches out and she touches Jesus' robe and, and what happens? 
Jesus' power, his virtue goes out of him and into her body, and she's made clean. Now, in the old, under the old covenant, it usually would work the other way. Usually the impure thing would make the pure thing impure. But in Jesus' case, under the new covenant, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, his holiness infected, so to speak, somebody else. And Paul says the same thing can happen in your marriage. That's what he means when he says that the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and vice versa. He's talking about your potential for your relationship with Christ to sort of bleed over into your spouse. Here's the point. God's plan for for marriage is so settled, it's so airtight, that even if you are married to a rebel, your marriage relationship is pure and holy. Don't ever, listen to me, don't ever, ever, ever feel less than. Don't ever feel guilty because you're faithful to your spouse who happens not to love the Lord. No, God loves that commitment. He loves that faithfulness. It's a pure relationship. God sees the ministry that you're having. God cares for you in the midst of the difficulty that causes. It's a pure relationship, so don't give up. Should I stay married? Yes. Marriage is a permanent relationship. It's a priority relationship. It's a pure relationship. You say, Jake, I still don't get why it is so important for me to answer this question this way. But friends, think about what your faithfulness in marriage is designed to signify. It is a dim reflection, isn't it, of the loyal love of a holy God. When I sinned, God didn't immediately destroy me. He didn't immediately cast me out. He didn't immediately send me away. When I deserved his frown, he was there for me in mercy. When I rebelled, he didn't give up. His mercies are from everlasting to everlasting. And his faithfulness from generation to generation. He is a God of loyal love and tender mercy. Consider Jesus who laid aside the glories of heaven and came into our world and identified with us by taking on flesh, who entered into our suffering and shame by taking on sin, who sacrificially loved us by laying down his very life, who will one day receive his church like a bridegroom welcomes his bride, who is preparing a place for us so that we might be his forever. You see, my marriage relationship, it doesn't do it perfectly, but it does reflect the purity and the mercy and the goodness and the holiness of Jesus Christ who sacrificially loved me and will one day welcome me into his family forever. This is what our marriage is intended to signify. So when you, friends, embrace the permanence, the priority, and the purity of the marriage relationship, that's a little testimony of the faithfulness and the loyal love of the Lord Jesus Christ toward his people. Should you stay married? Generally, yes, because of the faithful covenant love of the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but Jake, this is the real world. Does God take that into account? Are there ever instances where divorce is the right choice? So here's question number two. Are there any exceptions to the rule? Are there any exceptions to the rule? The simple answer is yes, there are. There are some exceptions. They are always tragic, always grievous, but they exist. So here's what you need to know about the reality of divorce as it is discussed in the New Testament. 
First of all, you need to know that Jesus and Paul both recognize the reality that divorce ends a marriage covenant. They recognize the reality that divorce ends a marriage covenant. Sometimes I hear Christians talk about this. I don't know if we think it through. And we say, you know what, they're still, they might be divorced, but they're still married in God's eyes. Have you ever heard anyone say that? But Jesus doesn't seem to think that way. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at John chapter 4, for example. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She's there at the well in the middle of the day. Why is she there in the middle of the day? Usually you'd go when it's cool. She's there in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to see her friends, because she's ashamed of her lifestyle. And so Jesus sees her there, and he gets right to the point. He says, he, he, he says, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. So he's interacting with her on the level of, of, of the choices that she's made, and he's ministering to her. But notice that Jesus doesn't say what I've heard a lot of Christians say. He doesn't imply that she's still married to any of these guys that she's divorced. He doesn't say, you're still married to the first guy, and then you're committing adultery with all these other guys. He says, you have had five husbands, not you have five husbands. So he acknowledges that in spite of the fact that her divorces were unwarranted, and I think that's pretty clear from the context, he still admits, he still acknowledges that those marriages are in the past. This is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, let not man divide. The implication is that man can divide this thing that God has put together. It's not a question of whether he can, it's a question of whether he should. So Paul essentially acknowledges the same thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, if your unbelieving spouse abandons you, then you're not enslaved, you're free. In other words, it's okay to acknowledge that that marriage is over. Jesus does this. The second thing you need to know is that there are times when divorce is the right choice. Did you know that? There are times when divorce is the right choice. Let me give you an example from Matthew chapter 1. Notice that when Joseph, this is Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? And when Joseph finds out that his betrothed wife is pregnant, obviously he does, he makes, he draws the conclusion any of us would make. Mary's been unfaithful to me. And so because he is a just man, because he is a righteous man, he says, I'm going to divorce her in private so as not to add shame to this woman. By the way, that's a costly choice because it would mean allowing his neighbors to speculate about his own character rather than reaching the conclusion that he was the innocent party. So follow the logic of the biblical author here. He's saying, Joseph, of course, he doesn't divorce her because he finds out from an angel what's going on. She's pregnant with uh, because of the Holy Spirit, with the, uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he learns that, Joseph is going to divorce Mary, and why is he going to divorce her? Because he's a righteous man. In other words, Joseph's initial choice uh, to divorce his wife is considered the right choice. Matthew connects righteous character, just character, with a decision to divorce. Uh, added to this, God himself is said to initiate divorce in both Jeremiah 3 and Isaiah 50. Uh, that's metaphorical language. God doesn't literally divorce uh, his, his people. It's, it's a metaphor, but the whole metaphor stands 
on this reality that it's in some cases, divorce is the right choice. God would not implicate himself in something that's a poor choice or that's an unjust or unwise choice. See, he hates divorce, but the truth is that there are times when it's not just a reality, it's the right choice. So number one, Jesus acknowledges the reality, divorce ends a marriage. Number two, sometimes divorce is the right choice. I'm not saying anything about when it's the right choice yet. I'm just saying sometimes it apparently is. Third thing you need to know about divorce is that there are two reasons explicitly cited in the New Testament for which someone could legitimately seek a divorce. I know I'm moving quickly through this. I'm sorry. But there are two reasons cited directly in the New Testament for which someone could legitimately seek a divorce. One of them is mentioned in our passage today. Uh, Paul says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave, they want to separate, then let it be so. You're free. That is, you're free to divorce that person. Uh, So an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. We call this abandonment. That's a scenario in which it is legitimate to seek a divorce. The other reason is cited by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19, namely sexual immorality. That is, if your spouse breaks their marriage vows by committing adultery, then according to Jesus, you have grounds to divorce your spouse. You don't need to feel like you're less godly or less holy if that's the decision you make. That is something Jesus says you're permitted to do. Okay? He wouldn't say that if he didn't mean it. Now, there is a ton of debate about this. For instance, there are whole libraries, literally whole libraries worth of books, that address the reality that Jesus mentions sexual immorality in these chapters in Matthew, but he doesn't address them in Mark's account of the same instances. Why is that? Maybe it's because Jesus doesn't mean what it seems to say he's meaning in in the book of Matthew. I don't want to get too much into the weeds. I just want to say, uh, I think it's safe to say, Mark means to address the general principle Matthew expands on the same events, and he addresses the exception as well as the general principle. And if you look at the meaning of the words, that's what it means, okay? Uh, We don't need to take these passages and make them fight against each other. God doesn't contradict himself. He's clear in what he wants to say. So there are these two instances, two valid reasons to seek a divorce that are explicitly cited in the New Testament But then here's where it gets a little tricky, and a lot of Christians start to give bad counsel because they don't think through what they're saying. Uh, What about something like abuse? Is a Christian required to stay married to somebody who is beating them? What if one spouse is a danger to their children? Does there have to be an instance of physical abuse for divorce to be justified? Like, do you have to wait until this person uses violence? Or is the threat of abuse grounds enough to seek a divorce? Is there some sort of holding pattern required in this sort of situation? Like you can separate, you can remove yourself physically from this person, but you've got to stay married because it doesn't explicitly say in the New Testament. Well, all that leads me to the fourth thing that you need to understand about divorce in the New Testament. Simply put, Jesus and Paul did not intend 
to list all the legitimate reasons for divorce explicitly. Jesus and Paul did not intend to list all the legitimate reasons for divorce explicitly. They just didn't address every last one. Now think about this. Jesus taught about marriage and divorce in the 30s AD, right? And we know the only recorded exception that we know Jesus addressed is the reality of sexual immorality. So if your spouse commits adultery, then you have valid grounds to get a divorce. That's the only exception that we know that Jesus directly addressed. Paul, writing 1 Corinthians, takes place in the 50s, 20 plus years later. And Paul doesn't address the exception of sexual immorality. He doesn't go to where Jesus goes and say adultery is a valid reason for divorce. Paul mentions something completely different. He talks about the issue of abandonment. So in other words, when Jesus teaches in the 30s about divorce, he doesn't mention an exception that Paul mentions. When Paul teaches about marriage and divorce in the 50s, he doesn't mention an exception that Jesus mentions. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Should we make these two passages fight each other? Should we say, well, Jesus is better than Paul, so let's take Jesus' words over Paul? I don't think that's what we're meant to do because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he's basing his teaching on the teachings of Jesus. Should we make Jesus' teaching sort of incomplete and say, well, you can't really understand Jesus until you get the other piece of the puzzle 20 plus years later? Is that the way we're meant to understand the teachings of Jesus? No, I don't think so. No, I think it's better for us to understand it this way, that Jesus and Paul did not mean to address every single instance in which it's valid to get a divorce. So here's what I have to do with that. Where does that leave us? Uh, what, 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 makes them, what that means is that we need to do two things. First of all, we need to take into account passages like Exodus 21. Exodus 21 speaks about a, a woman who's been uh, sold to another man, and then that man marries her, and then he finds a wife he likes better, and, and, and Moses says, okay, if he's passing up this first woman for another woman, he still has to treat her like a wife. She has rights, and if he doesn't take care of her, if he doesn't provide for her, if he doesn't protect her, if he doesn't engage in intimacy with her, then she has the right to walk away without any consequences. That's what he says in Exodus 21, because it's part of the marriage covenant to protect and provide for your wife. And Jesus and Paul, they, they base their teachings on, they don't say, okay, that was the Old Testament, let's throw that in the trash. No, they're basing their teachings on the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. So we need to take passages like that into account. Secondly, we need to take the principles Paul and Jesus state and apply them as needed in other situations. It's perfectly okay, it's perfectly appropriate and right for us to take the specific situation that Paul addresses and to say, there's the principle, I'm going to apply it to different situations. So for example, if Paul says in the New Testament that, if a, that abandonment is legitimate grounds for divorce, then how much more something that's worse than abandonment, like abuse? Isn't that valid grounds for divorce? If it's true that we can seek a divorce in the case of abandonment, then how much more in the case of abuse? You see, marriage involves obligations. And if you settle into a pattern in which you're doing the exact opposite of what you promised to do,
before witnesses on your wedding day, how can you expect your spouse to keep their vows? What you're asking for is a charade, not a real marriage. See, guys, do not try to use the teachings of the Bible to force your spouse to deal with ungodly behavior. And I, for one, I, I am willing to go out there publicly and say that if your spouse is abusing you, then you have permission from God, based on passages like Exodus 21, to get out of that marriage. You don't have to live in a holding pattern. Now, I, I would encourage you, to, I'm not trying to oversimplify something that gets very complex. Take the time, seek the counsel that you need. But you, do what, you can do what you need to do in that situation. Okay, Paul says in, in these instances, you're free. You're not enslaved. And, and that leads us to question number three. Question number one, should I stay married? Uh, yes. Question number two, are there exceptions to the rule? Yes, there are. We talked about those. Question number three, is remarriage an option after divorce? And the answer to this question is, in some cases, yes. Now, the reason this is even a question is because in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says that immorality is legitimate grounds for divorce, he seems to say, uh, or I should say, he also says that if a man marries a divorced woman, he's committing adultery. But you have to understand that when Jesus mentions this exception, immorality or adultery, that exception applies both backward and forward. In other words, if this divorce took place on legitimate grounds, if you divorced your spouse because of immorality, then that exception applies both to divorce and to the remarriage. Uh, grammatically, syntactically, that's just the reality. So uh, the other thing you have to understand is what divorce means in the mind of an ancient Jewish person. See, in modern times, we talk about money, you know, what, what happens to the property, what about the custody arrangements with the kids. But in ancient times, it was a little simpler than that. Divorce simply meant you're free, you've got a certificate that says so, you're free to go out and marry someone else. This is what's found in the Jewish document known as the Mishnah. It says, quote, the essential formula in the bill of divorce is... Lo, thou art free to, to marry any man. Rabbi Judah says, Let this be from, my, from thy writ of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of liberation that thou mayest marry whatsoever man thou wilt. In other words, in Jewish culture and certainly in Greco-Roman culture, the whole point of divorce, the whole idea of a legitimate divorce was to create a legal permission for a divorced person to marry somebody else. If they had a certificate of divorce, that was why it was needed. Nowadays, you have alimony, child support, etc. But back in those days, that wasn't really the issue. The issue was whether or not you're permitted to get remarried. So this is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 7, you're not enslaved, you're free. Free to what? Free to remarry. In fact, it's possible that this was the specific category Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. He talks about the unmarried. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur actually makes this point, that that word unmarried shows up later in the passage and refers directly to people who have been married and are separated or divorced from their spouse. 
So he's saying that, that, that the same restrictions and exceptions as apply to the matter of divorce also apply to the topic of remarriage. Now, I know we're dealing with a difficult and sensitive topic in one hour or less, <laughs> and we're getting into some things that are very difficult, but generally speaking, this is the teaching of the Word of God. Should you stay married? Yes. Are there exceptions? And in any instances where divorce is the right choice, sadly, yes. What about remarriage? In some cases, yes. If the divorce is legitimate, then remarriage is permitted. Now, if you're here and you're looking for loopholes and excuses to do whatever it is that you want, then you're missing the point. The truth is that you're going to hurt yourself and a lot of other people in the process of just doing whatever you want. That's not why God's word is here for us. But it's important that you recognize the character of our God. He isn't ignorant to the pleas of the needy. He, is, he isn't unaware of the sufferings of his people. He isn't flippant when he asks us to obey. He meets us in the throes of real life. So with that being said, let me just leave you with one very specific challenge. One specific application. Do not deal with these topics alone. Do not go it alone. Don't be tempted by Satan to question the goodness and mercy of God. Don't allow him to isolate you from the flock. This is what we do. We're going through this situation. We're desperate. We're in a difficult time. We feel like nobody understands. Nobody recognizes the difficulty I'm facing. Everybody just doesn't understand. They don't get it. I'm going to pull back from God's people. I'm going to pull back from God's word. I'm going to isolate myself. And I'm going to make decisions to protect myself, and we end up protecting ourselves not from a harmful situation, but we end up protecting ourselves from God. That's a mistake. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. Don't do that. Don't go it alone, because you need to understand that God knows your situation. God isn't glib. He isn't pie in the sky. He meets us in real life. God's people, he equips us to do the same thing. So don't allow Satan to take us in the moment when we're, when we're most in need of the body of Christ, when we're most desperate, when we're most uncertain about what to do, when we're most blinded by the grief and the pain and the confusion, and, 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 and he chooses that moment to make us question God's wisdom. Don't let him do that. Don't go it alone. Don't let shame or doubt pull you away from the word of God or the people of God. Trust the goodness and the wisdom of God. Because he is a wise God who understands real life. He is a good God who understands real pain. Think of Jesus. He lived it. Jesus understands our temptations and our difficulties and our sufferings. He lived through all these things. He even faced the cross. He went to the cross so that we might be saved. Friends, he understands the difficulty that you're facing in your marriage. Don't go it alone. Lean into the Lord Jesus Christ and into the family of God Take courage in him and open your mouth and say, I need help. I need guidance. I need it before things get out of hand. I need help now before I've already decided what to do. I'm going to lean into God's people and lean into God's word and trust him and his ways. Uh, that's what we need to do. I know we've talked about some, some difficult things today. And I know there's probably a lot of regret. There's probably a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion out there. But, but folks, 
we serve a God who can take ashes and turn them to beauty. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, even after everything you've said, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to take the past 10 years or the past 20 years or the past 30 years and make them mean something. I don't know how to take a situation where I'm stuck and make it into something where I'm useful to God, where I'm pleasing to God, where I'm taking enjoyment in God. I'm telling you, you can trust him and you can trust the people of God to help you through those situations. So that's what I want to challenge us to do today as we respond to God's word. Would you bow your heads and uh, let's just pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help in responding to the teaching of the word. Father, we, we lean on your wisdom. We need your wisdom. We trust and rest in your goodness. And Father, we, we acknowledge our weakness, our lack of understanding, our lack of foresight. We acknowledge that many times we've responded to people's suffering with flippant band-aid solutions when what we really needed to do was to point people to you and to your word. And so, Father, we, we pray that, you're, that you would just take those regrets, the things that we've done wrong, the things for which we know we're guilty, and that you would apply your grace. That as you convict us of sin, you would show, this, show us the way of healing. And that you would enable us to be a church that walks through these difficulties together faithfully in a godly way, in a way that reflects the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and not the character of the world. Father, please help us as we respond. In Jesus' name.